3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 8.55am or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. My name is James and today we're going to be talking about working from home with Alison Pennington. Uh, Alison is a senior economist at the Australian Institute's Centre for Future Work, conducting research on economic issues facing working people. Welcome, Alison. Thanks so much for coming onto the show. My pleasure, James. So I think, you know, we're all pretty familiar with working from home and all of those, you know, kind of terms and jargon that goes around um, by now. But I think, you know, for those that are lucky enough to have a job through the pandemic and are working from home, either through lockdowns or more permanently as part of kind of the modern workplace. It's become, I, I think, you know, there's a little bit to kind of navigate throughout, you know, the challenges that that presents for workers. What are some of the things, I guess, initially that you've sort of come across in your research? Well, like exactly as you said, this pandemic suddenly uh, a job that allowed you to isolate yourself and like save yourself from contagion, but also derive an income meant that you were in a much better position than people who had to leave the home and often do that front facing public facing work and then you know, be exposed. Um, the other thing that we we found in our research is that uh, not only was it about your exposure to the virus based on whether you worked from home or not, but also that also cut down generally like the quality and security of a job and whether you had access to sick leave uh, and your and your pay as well. So people working from home on average earn about 24% more than those who can't. So that's a pretty strong like inequality divide that's being driven, I think, in this time. But uh, in saying that, we now know that there's like we estimated at the start of the pandemic that around 30% of the workforce could work from home in some capacity. But now we know as it's gone on, this has grown to uh, around 5.3 million people or 41% of all employed people in Australia are doing uh, most or all, or sorry, I should say at least once uh, per week they're moving, they're working from home. So we're talking like a very large section of the workforce now. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this isn't about, uh, well, we need to be aware of the way we're being stratified and divided, but we also need to be very clear that the work, people working from home are working under an entirely unregulated labour regime in many ways. And some of the key things that have come up, um, you know, in our you know, thinking and research on this is, first and foremost, the costs of working from home. There is a massive cost shift that's going on right now 
uh, of employers shifting their costs onto workers. Uh, and we know because office works were reporting that their shelves were being emptied at the start of the pandemic and people were paying for their own office, home office setups. So you've got those costs and fixed and upfront, the, the, the fixed upfront cost of setting up an office, but all the ongoing costs. Um, people, I mean, besides the fact that a lot of people don't have a spare room in their house to, to dedicate to an office, they are still, they're still paying rent or their mortgage. They're still paying utilities, internet bills, printing sometimes. Uh, and so all these costs would have been normally carried by an employer so there's a cost shift and that's led to corresponding you know demands for some sorts of allowances or compensation for those costs there's issues of safety what does what do our work health safety legislation mean if an employer is required by law to ensure you have a safe workplace what does it mean if we have hundreds of thousands of homes that become workplaces Uh, another key issue is privacy there's a lot of if people take their work computers back home, quite often those computers are, there's like software and programs that monitor their, you know, their, whether they're using social media, some really pernicious ones, keystrokes and, you know, like that sort of productivity raising, you know, worker beating sort of stuff is, you know, we're worried about how much of that has followed people into the home and our privacy laws are not very, are not strong enough. Yeah. yeah there's a lot to kind of unpack there. And I guess one of the things, you know, that I've sort of really been thinking about is, I guess through the pandemic, we've seen a broader realisation of how much of an impact casualisation has had on workers. Um, you know, most and most of those workers themselves don't have the option to work from home when lockdowns do occur. And I, th- you know, I think casualisation was probably one of the biggest changes to the workforce, um, you know, for many, many years. And it was really sold to workers as a flexible option that they could manage their time, they could do different things and you know, still fit in their hobbies or for their family obligations and things like that. And I I think that this new uh, working from home, these kind of flexible options seem to be a reimagining of casualisation. Do you think we should be concerned about, you know, who has the power in deciding when you work from home? Because it's all well and good to have the benefits, but, you know, the power seems to be, you know, not necessarily in the workers' hands about which days and which times we get to do that kind of work. Oh, absolutely, James. Like <clears throat> when this pandemic first hit, I thought there's the employers are they're going to be sort of licking their lips and thinking the, the opportunity to reduce costs means they're going to want to keep people in the home. And I thought, well, workers now need a corresponding right to return to a normal workplace and the mm. right to separate the process of selling their labour in paid work from their private lives. Um, but it's sort of from what the data shows, so the ACTU did this massive survey and um, this combined with a whole bunch of international surveys that workers really love working from home, right? This is mm-hmm. the pandemic has absolutely shifted uh, the dial a bit. And I think what workers are saying is that they want to at least have some sort of hybrid experience of being in the home and, and a fixed workplace. Working from home all the time isn't that popular, but, uh, you know, best believe that like employers are not happy about the loss of control they've got in this time. Um, so there's, there is a current of employers and that are businesses that are organising and lobbying on the basis of every worker must return to the workplace. We're not like you may have, may remember Scott Morrison came out randomly in one of his one of his few press conferences and just said something to the effect of we're not like the UK and the US uh, and like Europe. We work in cities and so everyone has to get ready to go back. And for me that just sounds like commercial real estate and a certain layer of business um, just pushing this angle because they can see that they've lost some some power to determine where workers work at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 
also survey evidence shows that um, there's been a massive increase in more worker-friendly uh, types of flexible arrangements like job sharing and compressed working weeks that has happened in this time too. So it's the work from home shift is, I think, expanding workers' ex- experience or uh, belief of, that they can have some more agency over how they work. Now, this is we're coming up to, I think, like some pretty serious contested terrain now because there's we know that there are these desires to do something. And for me, I work following, you know, the industrial relations laws and what our legislation shows. And like there's just it's going to be very hard for workers to be able to hold on to these gains if they want to stay, um, you know, have this sort of agency. So this is why, yeah, we basically need to create a labour regime and a program of protecting worker rights now that is around work from home. And we need to be building, you know, campaigns and, and worker power around this. This is James, and you're listening to Stick Together, the only national radio program focusing on union news, worker stories, and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with support of the Community Radio Foundation. Some workplaces have permanently moved their staff out of the office or, you know, even completely removed any sort of office building at all uh, on uh, my other show, Outprise Radio, earlier this year, we spoke to some workers who were working in a call centre and they are now permanently working from home. And, you know, that's also casualised and, you know, that carries a lot of burden and responsibility for those people working, living in share houses and trying to set up a private space to be able to make those calls. And I guess, you know, I, I know this maybe isn't a, uh, as much of an issue for all workers, but certainly some of us who are interested in unions and workplace organising. You know, it just seems really difficult for workers to be able to organise when you're working from home. It's not just, you know, bigger disputes and things like that, but it's all the incidental things. You know, I think hearing about how much your colleagues get paid or trying to get everyone to get out the door at five o'clock and, you know, little things like that. Uh, you know, how can we organise and how can we, you know, keep going with that kind of uh, workplace solidarity without the kind of physical contact with each other. Also being this underlying bubbling question for me and uh, because of the scale of the crisis we're in that is so profound, it's, it's uh, you know, snatching people's incomes. We've got governments hostile to large, you know, most of us really uh, and, you know, personal lives in total shambles and we know though at the same time there are people who are safe and powerful enough to be coming up with plans about how to rejig uh, the, the state of play even further in their interests. If it's possible to do that in Australia, which already has some of the most anti-union legislation in in the um, in advanced economies, and we already know that we've got historic low levels of unionisation, uh, collective bargaining has under this enterprise level, you know, fast has completely collapsed, especially in the private sector. So for that example of the casual worker who's in a call centre now working from home, like the, it is dire. And I, I actually have a, you know, I know people just in that position because mm. there's casuals already um, face a massive uphill battle in being able to build enough strength to unionise uh, and A lot of the times where we've seen gains in recent, you know, union battles, it's been, and I'm thinking of particularly the UWU's campaigns, they've getting, getting gains for casual workers and including stronger conversion rights and, you know, higher pay and all those sorts of things has depended on those workers being in the same workplace with permanent workers and being able to 
fix or um, you know integrate their well-being and their future and their their conditions to the conditions of permanent workers who by way of being harder to sack are in a position to take more risks and collectivize and get better outcomes for everyone what is what would it look like future union representation this time like i think past organizer i know employers are incredibly hostile about unions even being able to email people and so like there's it's hard to email non-members you can only make contact with your own membership and then, of course, you need your delegates to be able to build connections on the ground to reach non-members, right? This, so mm. I've worked in, you know, white-collar um, public sector environments, and so you you need those people to be able to network to find to find people, have conversations. Because if if a non-member gets a email and takes it to someone higher ups, eventually commission, like there are there are penalties for communicating in ways that are outside of our laws, right? So this is what I mean by our ridiculous, um, pernicious laws. So yes, I guess in short, James is like I think we're going to have to be creative about putting forward what a union rights program would look like um, to reach work from home workers. What does collective bargaining look like when we're looking, talking about individual disaggregated people? In many ways, we just we need a whole new system of bargaining. Well, we need a whole new system of bargaining. We do know that. We need sectoral bargaining. Um, and maybe this is that those demands start to build into the, the very clear limits we're coming up with with enterprise-level bargaining now. Given that, mm. as we said, 5.3 million people um, last month did it worked at least once a week. Um, this is before lockdowns, I should say. Yeah, so worked at least once a week from home. We're talking about a lot of people here. And I think, you know, I guess one of the other issues is, you know, while working from home, I think women are, you know, much more likely to carry the burden of unpaid labour in the home. And I think, you know, there's also concerns with women who experience family violence being exposed to longer periods of time living with a person who uses violence. Do you think, you know, there's a way perhaps through the unions or, you know, hopefully um, through government that there's a way we can address some of the gendered issues of working from home? Yeah, we need decent, uh, you know, our, our paid parental leave system, our family-friendly workplace policies and laws are just so abysmal in, in Australia. Like, we are so far behind. So it means lots of women are going into this um, already dealing with employers who say, Oh, if we give you some level of flexibility so you can care for your kids, is this is already a gift that we're giving you? Mm-hmm. And it's everything has to be like women have fought to get access to, you know, be able to work and earn their own incomes and some level of independence. And I think that like what I've seen is we, we got a lot of these gains um, in flexible work arrangements for women to help them work. And then in, over time, I, as we've gotten this more hostile industrial relations environment, some, somehow now parental leave and flexible work arrangements have become yeah a privilege that is extended to to workers, and that is an impossible situation for so many women um, who do carry the burden um, the largest you know burden of a workload of unpaid caring and um, household tasks. So I I think some of the other stats we know is happening in this time is there's been while women have. Uh, this the unpaid caring work that's exploded during the pandemic to care for each other and you know meet human needs that is overwhelmingly falling on women's shoulders. We know that men have undertaken they've increased their levels of um, childhood uh, children caring like caring for kids, um, not so much household tasks right but they they're doing more work caring for kids and there's been a bit of a shift I think with working from home where um, especially young families have realised 
um, that there are other ways that they can carve up these roles. And that's kind of like a bit of a silver lining is I think it's actually creating the basis for um, a lot of young fathers who have said time and time again, if you gave me more flexible work arrangements and better pay parental leave, I'd bloody take it and I'd, I'd do it and I'd spend t- more time with my kids. So I think there's been a shift in uh, at least people's expectations, but I don't think that's at all been we haven't seen any changes in our industrial relations laws. Employers have got a whole bunch of tools to keep cutting wages and, you know, do what they do, but we haven't got anything on our side to really ensure that um, women are not going backwards uh, in their careers. And what go, what happens is because they have all this extra work, they cut back their paid work hours. They might drop back to part-time if they were full-time. So they lose incomes. They lose, um, you know, their, their standing in their overall progression of their careers and we know as, you know, in gender economics that these are key factors for gender pay gaps is that women are always the ones that cut back their paid work in order to do the, the important unpaid caring work. Um, and the idea is you want to create a system where women aren't penalised for, first of all, undertaking that work, you know, by having decent income supports, but also a, a more generous workplace support system that encourages men to take on and would do a better sharing of that work by not by not financially penalizing people um on the domestic violence issue it is this other like thing that has to be continuously talked about because while we were all working from home media were just you know and police telling funny stories about how people are working at home and watching netflix and their pjs and like it was it was terrifying a terrifying time for so many women in in australia um, and people in hostile, violent situations at home where the workplace is actually a source of their empowerment, where they derive incomes, um, where they consider a future beyond that abusive person, where they plan for a future beyond that abusive person, and where, as you as you rightfully pointed out, they can connect with organisations like unions who fight for them to – they can join the fight for things like 10 days paid domestic violence leave. And that's an ongoing, very live campaign. So what does it mean now that those women can't be in the workplace fighting for those things? Um, how are we going to, you know, aggregate the power to, to support people now, you know, trying to continue to derive an income and to build their independence while facing that, you know, very, very live threat in the home? Mm, yeah, well, I think just before we, we finish up uh, today, and it's been a really great chat, thanks for – providing so much insight into, you know, what are really kind of complex issues and, like you said, need a lot of structural reform to, you know, really support workers. Uh, I wanted to just move slightly away from working from home for one second, and I'm going to read back to you a quote that um, from yourself earlier this year. Um, and it's just about, I guess, the role of think tanks. And I guess I've just got a question around that. So this is your quote. I see our job as being able to articulate what's going on in the economy, to explain that and to explain the alternatives, like how we could be organising the economy to meet human need or to address the climate crisis. And I guess, yeah, my question is, like, do you think think tanks are providing, I guess, a political space in Australian society that was once taken up by political parties and the media, as those institutions seem to have moved, you know, kind of away from debate? And I guess some of the more, you know, the larger left-wing organisations, you know, no longer around and unions are not perhaps providing that space. Do you think that, you know, think tanks can provide some of that political discussion and sort of left debate in society today? Oh, I certainly think so, James. That's why I've, I I think as someone who's trying to push the, you know, push the needle and um, progress worker rights, for me, it seems like the best place to be contributing. 
And that I, I, I believe that, and I guess if I'm speaking from my own choices and strategic choices, is I've looked at the, the lay of the land and, um, you know, like it's quite clear we've got a pretty profound, deep political crisis. Uh, and the crisis of the Labor Party, like we could talk at length about what's going on, going on there. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that given the state of like the, the, the level of hostility that unions are having to operate under right now, um, I, I think I, I, cause I used to work in a union. I, I come from a more independent working class politics, which is not wedded to any institutions, but one that recognizes we, we build institutions that are useful for us to achieve the power we want, right? And so unions unto themselves are not progressive. They are just, they're mechanisms for us to join, to fight within, to achieve our outcomes. Um, and so I, uh, when I, as I was working in a union, I got a, and having to organize through, you know, things like the Fair Work Act and dealing with like the level of hostility in our legislation, in employers, and of course, like so much work to do in our own backyard in terms of coming to terms with like the state of enterprise bargaining, the fact that that was a failure, the legacy of the accords, you know, a, a member focused type of organization, professionalism rather than organizing focuses. You know, we've got a lot in our own backyard, but pulling all those things together, I, I think in this particular time of like the, I just I think the best way to push the whole thing along is to be building debate, getting out there and, you know, becoming a bit more not scared to take risks and throw stuff out there. Um, and I yeah, I think that the, the, the think tank I work for, which is it's the Centre for Future Work, it's part of a larger think tank called the Australia Institute. In terms of the think tankery landscape for Australia, we're pretty much the only like independent progressive outfit in town, right? We don't take money from political parties. Uh, we take, you know, it's everyday Australians generally that, that contribute to the, our organization and pay my way. And that means that we are able to, to speak to any policies at any point in time without fear. And, um, we're not worried about our money being cut off because we just said something that someone didn't like. And I don't think that's the same for uh, every, just about most other think tanks in Australia, um, ones that call themselves progressive, as well as the majority of think tanks, which are big right wing tobacco, you know, fossil fuel funded organisations like the IPA. So, I mean, yeah. And I think, I, I, you know, with the Australia Institute, um, you know, throughout last year and earlier this year, there was a number of kind of webinars and um, I think, yeah, really interesting things that were put on as well. And I guess it can be a source for raising people's political consciousness and, you know, really trying to learn about, you know, in this time, maybe you do have some time to you thinking about the way that the world is being shaped, that there's certainly some ideas to engage with there that can help to form or shape some of the things that people have been thinking about during this pretty difficult time for workers. Yeah, and, and holding that space, well, providing that space and holding that space and showing that, you know, we need that engagement and discussion and debate and it's Australia's not immune from a global, uh, you know, decline in democratic participation. It goes inside. It's a, it's on par with the decline of the union movement, which is a really key way that civil society was organised in Australia. Uh, and absolutely providing that space and just holding some of that space because I think uh, I, I, every day I'm really proud of the work of the Australian Institute. And you know, we're a, a broad bunch with a whole bunch of you know different perspectives on stuff, but First and foremost, we're committed to um, to debate and to 
facts and that's especially in a time of like real disengagement disdain for and rightful disdain for institutions that have screwed people over for so long um in order to build that new world you have to hold the space and talk about the ideas of what that is because like you were saying before James it's clear that uh, at this point our political parties aren't aren't able to do that um aren't able to dream up what those big picture questions are take on that that debate right they're they're biting their tongues a lot they're they're too risk averse and I think um deep down what what drives me and I think yeah keeps me going is that I know as you know a working class person who talks to other working class people that like people are fed up they're not they're not idiots they're not and they're not waiting for people to show them the way like they they want to engage and they want to be you know, their their hands aren't painted on. Like they they can they can articulate things for themselves, and they're they're far more progressive than our media is is. I think there's a general social democratic perspective that isn't being reflected in our mainstream media, ABC included. I think there's been mm. a big drift. So I, I take confidence in that, and I I think the think tank is a, is a good framework to be keeping that participation and debate alive. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on 3CR today, and. I think it is really important work to imagine a future that is, you know, today, tomorrow, and much further into the future that is a better place for workers. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Alison. Cheers, James. Good morning. You're with Jacob. And Fung. On 3CR Breakfast, welcome to those that have just joined us. And we just heard an excerpt from a recent Stick Together report on research to come out about the impacts of working from home. James Brennan spoke with senior economist from the Australian Institute, Alison Pennington. And to check out the full research, head to the australianinstitute.org.au or you can check out 3CR's Stick Together on 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together. We're now going to go to a track. Um, this is Stay in Bed by Alice Guy.
Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. That was uh, Stay in Bed by Alice Guy. Annie McLaughlin from 3CR Solidarity Breakfast caught up with Everybody's Home campaigner Kate Colvin. We are going to talk about homelessness. It's the beginning of Homelessness Week, Awareness Week. Of course, with COVID, that's become an increasingly horrendous situation with rents all across the country going up as, uh, I don't know, as people from the city are moving to regional areas, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole range of things that are causing homelessness ranging from there not not being enough stock as well as generally um, price gouging. But we're going to be uh, follow a national story. We're going to talk to Kate Colvin from Everyone's Home, which is the national campaign against homelessness. They sent out a message saying that there's a rental crisis for COVID essential workforce you know, with 87 of Australia's 104 geographic regions showing that people who are essential to the servicing of our community, especially obvious during COVID, uh, all those supermarket workers, all those carers, all all the people who are driving the trucks, all that sort of stuff, they, they're finding it really difficult to pay their rent in areas at, at a reasonable rate at, with at least one third of their weekly income going towards their accommodation. And they're also having to travel travel uh, ridiculous lengths of time in order to actually reach their workplaces. Uh, Anyway, I had a a yarn with Kate to find out a little bit more about it all. First up, could you tell listeners about Everybody's Home, the national campaign against homelessness? Sure. So Everybody's Home was started in 2018 because a whole bunch of community sector organisations were worried that the government just wasn't listening about the impact that Um, lack of housing was having on people and you know for years they haven't properly increased investment in social housing and and also haven't made changes that are needed like negative gearing reform and and what have you so um, uh, it was decided that a different tack needed to be taken to better connect the public with these issues and so we created the everybody's home campaign um to really raise the profile of the issue, but also give the public a way to get involved through digital actions and stuff. So all of the listeners can, if you go to everybodyshome.com.au, you can, you know, join up and and then be actively involved in calling on government to do a better job about the housing crisis. Now, you've just recently put out some very interesting statistics around... um the essential workforce, the uh, care, uh, the carers, the uh, hospitality and uh, supermarket workers and childcare workers who are being priced out of the housing market. Yes, absolutely. And so what we're trying to show is how difficult high-cost housing is, even for people who are in waged employment, but you know, who are on on wages that are not high. And a lot of the really important work in our community is done by people who unfortunately are not paid very much. So people in aged care, in disability support, in the childcare workforce, people who work in supermarkets. So these are all professions we, I guess, rely on during times like COVID. And yet for, um, you know, someone working in a um, a supermarket in... Uh, uh, Melbourne, they would need to um, 
you know, say in Western Melbourne, they'd need to pay like um, work for 16 hours just to pay rent, and that's more than a third of their, um, you know, week's work. And of course, if you're not a full-time employee, then that means you know you, you're working 16 hours just to pay the rent, and then what have you got left after you've paid the rent to manage all your other costs? Yeah, so at least one-third of uh, their weekly incomes in 87 of Australia's 104 geographic regions, for example. Yes, absolutely. So right across Australia, this is a problem. And across um, Victoria, it's more than in across um, the whole city, people have to work more than a third of the week if they're in those um, uh, low-paid sectors. Oh, and it's worse in nine regions where they have to work two-thirds of a full works, working week's income to rent an apartment. Ah, uh, yes. And so, you know, those um, – and, and and one of the things about that, so in, you know, Sydney CBD, in, in, in um, the Gold Coast, in Queensland, in um, um, most of Canberra, um, people have to work two-thirds of the week just to pay rent. But in every community, we need those workers. I mean, every community has supermarkets. Every community has childcare centres. And so you you need people to be able to kind of live near where they work. But in those places, it's basically impossible for someone on a low wage to find a rental. And there's a lot of other communities, you know, where um, um, people have to, um, you know, pay like half the week's wage just in rent. So what we're trying to highlight is that there's just not enough affordable rentals, you know, in the market. And the government really needs to be investing in more public and community housing so people have options when they go looking for a place to rent that they can afford. Now, when you looked at these figures, you found this right across Australia, every state, every state. So some are more expensive than others, but certainly um, every state has um, communities where people um, have to pay um, more than a third of their um, income. As you said, 87 of Australia's 104 um, regions. So, that yeah, that's absolutely right across the state. So just to give you a sense, like in Canberra, a supermarket employee would have to work for 23 hours in Adelaide for 15 hours, in Melbourne for 18 hours, and in Perth for 19, 19 hours. So it's it's like it's just the rental market's just really out of control, and and that's the the difficulty that's faced by people who are in paid employment. But for people who are out of work, it's just like it's it's like they can the the rent can be more than what they actually get in social security payments. So it's just basically impossible for them to afford a rental. Now, in the Australian economy, it's quite clear that uh, there's one group of people who are house owners uh, and people who are uh, in using investment properties as a way of uh, uh, covering themselves in their instead of superannuation. There's a whole system within our... uh, And in the last election, in fact, the Labor Party went to the electorate with a change negative gearing approach, which would have had some effect on this. Uh, But 
it was rejected by the electorate. Do you think it's because people don't really understand that if there is public housing and social housing, that in actual fact this would have an effect on the uh, rental market? Look, I think um, the results at the last election, you know, why that happened, are kind of complex. And I, I don't know that the government, the people did reject um, the negative gearing proposed reforms. And in, in, they seemed like they were sort of pretty popular. It was maybe some of the things around the um, uh, franking credits that got like some bad press. But um, I think what, I mean, the level of social housing investment that we are calling for in the campaign is intended not just to provide um, like we're calling for 500,000 social and affordable housing properties to be built across the country, not just because the people who need them right now would then get a property, but also because putting that much extra low-cost rentals into the market would actually affect the price of the private rental properties because now there's so much competition for low-cost rentals that it doesn't matter if you're try- if you're a landlord um, looking for tenants for a place that has holes in the wall and cracked paint and, you know, um, you know, a stove that doesn't even really properly work. Like, uh, there's lots of places around that are like that, but they'll still find tenants because people are really desperate. Um, so the idea is if there's a lot of low cost rentals that are, that are available, then people can, um, go looking for a cheaper property and be able to choose something that's a quality property and not have to accept, um, you know, some really exploitative situation where a landlord is, um, you know, just taking advantage of the fact that people are being squeezed out of the rental market to to force someone to pay a lot of money for a property that's um, not up to scratch. So there's a whole lot of issues involved here. Uh, the uh, creation of this uh, system that has actually uh, priced essential workers out of the market and COVID has shown how essential the caretakers of our society are. Uh, what we're really seeing is that um, wealth is being... Um, given greater priority, the wealth in certain people's hands is given greater priority to over the sustainability of our society. Would that be fair to say? Look, it does seem like, you know, these decisions that are taken by government, you know, their choices between one thing and another. And unfortunately, the government has chosen to invest money, say, at the moment in you know, tax cuts for high-income earners at the same time that we've got, um, you know, 116,000 people in Australia homeless and those numbers keep growing. So it's it's very frustrating, but I guess that's why we created the campaign because, you know, the government is ultimately, um, you know, our government to to influence and by being active citizens, we can be more influential on government. So... Um, we wanted to give people a way to be a part of that. And, I mean, you know, not just through the Everybody's Home campaign and signing petitions and what have you. I mean, I would encourage, you know, the list, all your listeners to, you know, get in contact with your local MP, say that you don't think this is okay, you know, write letters to the paper. Like, 
those kinds of um, actions can make a difference to getting government to listen because I have to say at the moment uh, this government um, is not listening terribly hard. So we're talking about the federal government. Have you had any um, action from or responses from state governments? Look, well, certainly in Victoria we've had a very good response. So, um, you know, the Everybody's Home campaign was part of the effort to encourage the Victorian government to invest in social housing and they have put um, uh, $5.3 billion into a social housing investment program over four years and that's like that's a pretty big um, investment from a state government. It's bigger than certainly any other state government has made and it's bigger than the Victorian government has made in the past. So, look, that's a really positive result, but it comes after years of underinvestment, and so it's like we're playing catch-up, and um, what we really need is for it to not just be for state governments that are having to do all the heavy lifting because... Really, it's the federal government has more, um, you know, income, more revenue to spend than the state government does. So we are, we are really calling on the federal government to lead a process with the states where effectively they put in some money and, the, and, and require the states to add to that pool. So, you know, they say, look, you know, we'll invest in social housing in Victoria if we spend, um, uh, you know, for every million dollars we spend, you also have to spend a million dollars. Um, that would, of course, you know, mean that you had two million dollars for every million that the um, federal government put in. So it should be seen as a good deal by them. Um, and certainly, you know, the state governments, I think, would really um, appreciate partnering to do it. And I think it's really difficult for state governments when they are left just kind of carrying the can for what's uh, a reasonably expensive, though very important sort of program of spending. Do you have an attitude towards uh, public housing versus social housing? Well, we use social housing to refer to public housing plus community housing. And to be honest, I think they're both really important. So, you know, the public housing um, um, portfolio is kind of the bedrock of of social housing, it's um, you know such an important part of the the housing um, options that are available to people. But um, community housing um, provides some really fantastic um, boutique options to particular um, client groups. So, for example, you know there's some really great providers that provide housing specifically to women or um, providers who provide housing specifically to older people and and then those housing products are really um, tailored and made really great for that particular group of people who are using the housing likewise with young people. Um, so I think they both have a role to play um, but um, yeah, certainly in Victoria the public housing portfolio is, is much bigger than the um, community housing portfolio. Kate Colvin there speaking with Solidarity Breakfast's Annie McLaughlin about the national campaign against homelessness, which highlights, among other things, that some essential workers are being priced out of the housing market, travelling up to 90 minutes to work sites 
and being paid so little that many are paying up to two-thirds of their pay in rent. And if you want to access more of that content, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Solidarity Breakfast. So uh, the time is 7.45am Monday morning. We thought we would bring you some news headlines from today. Um, And I guess the biggest one uh, around the world right now is what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, so it's looking quite dire, the situation. Um, There's been reports this morning that the Taliban have taken control of the capital, Kabul, seizing the presidential palace. Um, And we've heard that the president, Ashraf Ghani, has fled the country, um, which essentially means that the Taliban may be claiming governance Mm. very shortly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, And yeah, as a result, um, I'm sure you can imagine um, there have been reports that a lot of people um, are trying to to leave the country as a result. Um, And yeah, just looking at The Guardian, there's um, an article that's written by an Afghan woman who is a Kabul resident, um, and so if you're if you're interested in reading that, that's on the Guardian today, and it's it's terrifying um, for a lot of people, and I think especially for women over there at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we know, the Taliban uh, is a fundamentalist Islamic group who controlled Afghanistan between around 1996 to 2000. Um, and as we know, The Guardian is reporting that many folks are trying to leave the country. Um, and we know that the U.S. are also withdrawing their forces by Joe Biden's deadline of September 11th, 2021. Um, and the Australian government as well is believed to be looking at expanding its humanitarian visa intake mm-hmm. from Afghanistan, which is some good news. Um, yeah, we hope they follow through with, with that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, it's not looking good over there, but I think we can all be doing our part and making sure that our government's making the appropriate moves to support anyone from Afghanistan who needs protection. Mm, Exactly. Um, And so we might move on to some CSAs. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR. Priya spoke with Paul Healy, State Secretary of the Health and Community Services Union, or HACSU, to discuss Victorian mental health workers' fight for fair remuneration and working conditions as part of their new multi-year enterprise bargaining agreement. And now we're going to go into a track. This was released late last year, and it's called Always Was by Fluent, featuring Dylan Voller and Tani Walker. You are about to receive a phone call from a prisoner at the Casuarina Prison. Your conversation will be recorded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Don't think now that I'm locked up that you're going to silence me. Got opinions, but they don't want to help. So they just put it on their statuses and think of themselves. Well, I'ma let my heart pour and I tell it how it is. I'ma do it for my people, I'ma do it for my kids. I don't want them going through the same things that I did. I just want their future to be brighter and be a freedom fighter. And all my people to be equal when we light the fire. And sit around black and white and not be divided. United we stand, divided we fall. Until black lives matter, don't you ever say yo. Oh, in custody and not one conviction They try to say sorry but that shit's not gonna fix it The thing that needs fixing is this fucked up system We're jumping up and down but there's no one there to listen If no one's gonna listen then we'll take it to the streets Always was, always will be 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 To the fullest extent, this is just the most coolest intent. If you choose to express your vent, you're met with hostility and bullets in the head. And that's death, cease to exist, left deep in the ditch. This is evil as shit, but people are sick of these evil as tricks. Playing politics with our lives. We are the kings and the queens of our country. You can't tell me that my mama didn't love me. They still stealing kids. DCP, man, it's real as shit. They're so fucking conditioned that it feels legit. They take away tradition and they fill it with religious shit. The tricks the kids to think it's legit. I'm just saying they got all our people praying while our ancestors laying in a ditch. Huh. Always was, always will be. Always was, always will be. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and you just heard a track called Always Was by Fluent, Dylan Voller, and Tani Walker. 
And now we're going to go to an interview with Paul Healy, who's the State Secretary of the Health and Community Services Union, or HACSU. And Paul's joining us to discuss Victorian mental health workers' fight for fair remuneration and working conditions. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, good morning. Um, so could you start by telling us a little bit about HACSU's membership and take us through some of the roles that HACSU members are employed in across the health and community services sector? Yes, we're the specialist union for mental health and disability, so we have... Uh, close to 10,000 members and, uh, and a very diverse group right across that country dealing with Victorians, some of Victorians most vulnerable. In mental health, we, we cover nurses, so the nurses in mental health who work across junior ED department in the, in, uh, what, the emergency cat there. We have nurses in, in inpatient units, some aged care, uh, in many community jobs. Uh, also working with the police and ambulance and outreach services, uh, PACER and PROMPT. And um, and then we cover uh, allied health, so social workers, OTs. We have uh, specialist staff, uh, cleaners and admin workers. We also cover people with lived experience, so both uh, carer and people who have lived consumers who work in mental health supporting people through their journey of recovery. Yeah, awesome. I think... Um what you've what you've outlined there is this really covers um, a whole lot of frontline workers that have definitely been doing or doing a lot of the bearing the brunt of, of the COVID uh, pandemic um, in particular. So in late June 2021, um, Haxu conducted a survey of members in Victorian public mental health services, which produced a pretty dire picture of the working conditions that you face. Um, so what were some of the most important concerns identified by members and how has the pandemic influenced uh, some of these issues that were pre-existing? Look, mental health has been severely underfunded for a long, long time. It's been very short staff, so there's more than 450 uh, nurses uh, vacant positions in Victoria. Uh, the workforce has been under huge pressure as mental health issues have been spoken more widely in the community, which is a fantastic thing, but the services haven't been able to meet up with demand. You also add into the growth in Melbourne uh, pre-pandemic, the growth in Melbourne's population, and there hasn't been the growth in services. So each year, year in, year out, the services have been under more and more pressure, and it's gone from being a really um, proactive service to just a reactive service. So the most unwell people, or a small percentage of most unwell people, get seen, and everyone else has to try and manage their own way. So they've worked under this pressure for for a long, long time. But you had COVID in there, all the PPE and all the other equipment they have to wear to work every single day. And um, and then the, the spike in, in mental health disorders coming out of the pandemic, and, we, and we've all seen how difficult it is for people to be out of work, not have good steady incomes and all the funding and all the issues people have, that, and also being isolated. And humans are a very social animal, and being isolated from lots of people is really difficult. So... And you add into the short staffing. So some of our members who deal with the COVID also have to deal with um, uh, working double shifts, so 15-hour days. And we had one member last week did four in a row because they were so short-staffed. Um, it means they're missing out on seeing their family. And then you've got your kids at home and you've got to do homeschooling and all that sort of stuff. So there's no real break from the pressure cooker of really difficult, intense work and having to manage the you know, family in isolation. So... It's been a really hard time and they have been able to have take the breaks and just people are building up lots and lots of holidays because they just can't take holidays because they're so short stuff and there's nowhere really you can't go anywhere. So people haven't been going on leave, which they need those breaks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I recall one of the um, outcomes from the survey was 
people were thinking about leaving the sector because of these pressures? Yeah, it's about 10% of the people surveyed said they're thinking about leaving in the next six months, which would be about 700 more staff. So I mentioned the 450, with 700 more left, they actually need another 700 staff to be added into mental health to cover the new bed growth. So throughout the Royal Commission, uh, they've added in 100, 230 new beds, and it usually takes about three staff to one bed. So they're going to be very short-staffed, and none of the Royal Commission is going to be able to roll out in an effective manner unless they sort out staffing. Yeah, it is just, um, I guess, appalling to see the amount of pressure that mental health workers are under in Victoria and also with working conditions that are absolutely subpar and don't, you know, and, and pay rates that don't match up to the rest of the sector. So um, HACSU members have been working on raising these issues for some time now, and you presented a log of claims to the Victorian Hospitals Industrial Association back in February of 2020 to underpin your next multi-year enterprise bargaining agreement. Um, can you take us through some of the key proposals that you put forward for a viable EBA and uh, for the state's public mental health workforce and how the Victorian government has responded, if at all? Well, what we did was we, we saw the Royal Commission was coming and we set, up the, we set up our claims to underpin and support the Royal Commission for a strong rollout. So what, that, what came out of the Royal Commission, and particularly a part of our bargain, was that mental health workers need to be paid well and... Um, and, and have good career and have uh, recruitment and attention payments. That came out of the Royal Commission and the Productivity Commission. Uh, the government's offered a white pay rise last week of 2%, which makes them, the nurses will be paid less than the general nurses and the allied health will be paid less than, than in, on the general side. So you're not going to re- retain or recruit people into the sector if you don't pay them at a, a reasonable rate. We wanted an allowance paid to mental health workers to really encourage and grow the workforce to get it to a sustainable level. The staffing levels, so we've asked, to, we've asked to put in staffing levels that are safe and that will provide a variety of um, therapies and all the things that the consumers need. And all this work is based on, on what the consumers need and what their families need to give them support to deal with their mental illness. So it's all based on the staffing profiles. And we put it, we've asked for 920 staff we believe is needed across Victoria extra to actually build the workforce and provide the services that are required for Victorians. We also were very keen on uh, progressing, having some progressive policies around um, reproductive leave, and that was uh, for people, male, female and transgender, be able to take time off to deal with any reproductive issues, and we were asking for five days. That's been uh, refused. One of the other areas we're looking at is loss of pregnancy leave. If you lose a baby after 20 weeks, uh, you get your full leave, which is 10 weeks, but if you lose a baby at 19 weeks and six days, you get nothing. We don't, we don't think that's right, and we know that uh, one in five pregnancies lost at 12 weeks, and, uh, and after 12 weeks needs a medical intervention. So we're asking for five days a loss of pregnancy leave. The government said no, and we just think that's disgraceful. It's a female-dominated workforce at 70%. Um, and also we're looking to build career paths and structures and bring in educators so that we can support the workforce as it grows, particularly in the lived experience workers. They have no educators currently. And Allied Health in Victoria only have one educator uh, funded educator um, by the government in, in the whole state. That's a workforce of over 1,200. Yeah, that's shocking. And, I mean, really speaks to the fact that you're the public health, uh, public mental health workforce, and yet your own mental health is completely being neglected um, with government's decisions around this. Um, so can you tell us a bit about um, some of the actions that you've been engaged in to, to raise attention and to protest against this? Um, 
Can you tell us about the stop work action that happened last Wednesday, the 4th of August, before we went into lockdown? What did this involve? How did it go? And um, has government made any, uh, ha- given you any indications that there'll be a change or better offers? Uh, yeah, because normally we, we, we love to run big marches, and Melbourne's famous for its uh, marches in the streets for unions about various things, and, and uh, we haven't been able to run our marches this time. Uh, we Each time we've had a statewide stop work, it's been a COVID lockdown. This time we were able to do groups of 10, so we ran 16 separate actions, really targeting um, Daniel Andrews' office, uh, Minister Pallas, Molinos and Bowie's, and um, and also we went to Parliament and met and uh, stood there. And, and although we only met briefly and was COVID safe, we um, we we did those actions. Members have been taking uh, bans. We have bans running currently, which include you know some paperwork bans and those types of things to really um, you know cause a bit of frustration to hospitals to actually encourage them to get the issues sorted out. Um, it was really good. The members loved to get out. They love to actually have a good say with the Royal Commission. When the Royal Commission came out, they were really hopeful that the, the workforce was really optimistic that the Royal Commission was going to bring really positive things. And the Royal Commission is full of great stuff for the members, but it's going to take a long time to roll out. So the EBA is really important to give them that, that sort of positivity and a bit of, I call it a sugar hit, a hit to keep them going, keep them positive until the Royal Commission can roll out. And Daniel Andrews said the system was broken. These people are the only thing that holds this system together. This broken system are the workers. And uh, and they're not looking after them. So it seems really frustrating that members for 18 months now have been had these bans in place, have been taking stop works, have been, you know... Uh, and they don't get any back pay. So the government saves. Every day the government wastes is money saved by the government. It's money taken out of workers' pockets. And, uh, you know, really making the members really frustrated and angry and, you know, really disillusioned. And that's why 10% of them think they want to leave in the next six months. Yeah, it's completely unacceptable. Like this, this work is essential. It needs to be funded. It needs to be paid for fairly. Um, so where do we go from here and how can listeners follow along and support Haxu members in your fight for fair working conditions and remuneration? Well, we just, um, We've got lots of campaigns on social media, so get on our social media hacks too. Follow what we're doing there. Uh, it's really about having the conversation with your family members and people you meet to say, "Hey, mental health needs to be sorted out." The government's, you know, said they're going to spend 3.8 billion dollars on mental health to fix it, but they're not prepared to spend any money on workers. It's just beggars belief. So get involved with our campaigns. Contact the Minister Molino or your local members and say, "Hey, this is not good enough. Mental health workers deserve looked after." because they're going to look after the mental health of Victoria and that's going to make it a better state. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul, and really encourage listeners to uh, go to Haxi's social media and website and find out more and get involved in those actions. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And that was Paul Healy, the State Secretary of the Health and Community Services Union, or HACSU, who is speaking with us about the importance of Victorian mental health workers getting access to fair remuneration and working conditions, especially under the extra stress and duress of the COVID-19 pandemic and the mental health crises that have come out of that. Um, it's absolutely shameful that they are still having to fight for quite basic, you know, increases in pay and also just basic working conditions to to sustain their own mental health during this time. And you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Thanks to Priya from Breakfast uh, on Thursdays for that interview. Make sure you tune in to Thursday Breakfast from 7 AM.
And up next, we've got an interview with the Vixen Collective. As we know, last week, the Victorian government announced that it would be decriminalising sex work, removing offences and criminal penalties for consensual sex work. And there were also announcements to regulate sex work through existing government agencies, update and modernise planning and public health systems to support a decriminalised system. Uh, now, decriminalisation is something that sex workers have been asking for for decades now. But what does it actually mean? So joining us now from the Vixen Collective, which is Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation, is Dylan O'Hara. Good morning, Dylan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the legal conditions that sex workers currently operate under? Yeah, so Victoria, the current framework is called licensing. And so what that means is that you have basically a two-tiered sex industry. That's what that system creates. It's one of the, well, it's, it's the reason that it's a huge failure. So you have a small, probably small proportion of, of sex workers where we're able to, uh, to comply with these really onerous requirements. Um, but even, um, even people who are able to comply with the laws are still really struggling under them because they're extremely onerous um, and discriminatory. And then if you can't comply with those, for, for many reasons, you're forced to work in a way that's criminalised. Right. So it really divides our community. Um, thank you for that. So what kind of risks do sex workers face um, having to work within this two-tier system and, and navigate, navigate this? Sure. So, I mean, a really key part of it is that the, you know, the, the main regulators of the sex industry in Victoria are the police. So um, because we don't have decriminalisation, it means that sex workers are singled out in a way that, you know, really nobody else is. Um, and obviously coming into contact with police like that is, um, you know, it's, it's hugely problematic, especially for a community where, um, you know, many of us are marginalised in other ways. So often criminalisation is, is unfortunately the most impactful on people who are already um, likely to be exposed to, um, you know, to, to police harassment or to state violence. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess more broadly... Um, the police being regulators of the industry, um, you know, it makes it extremely challenging for people who um, do wish to access the justice system um, because, of course, there's a fear of self-incrimination um, and also just the overwhelming stigma and discrimination. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, honestly, I could, you know, I could, I could probably go on for, for quite some time about the, about the problems with the licensing system because they're comprehensive. Yeah, it's really a comprehensive failure. It just doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so many risks involved. And as you said, how do you seek justice when the police are the ones who are sort of overlooking the industry? So understandably, this has led to, to many calls um, for it to, to be decriminalised. And there was a good announcement last week that the Vic government um, is going to do that. Can you tell us a bit, what does it actually mean for sex work to be decriminalised? Yeah, so obviously Friday's announcement was a, you know, it was a really significant, I guess, commitment from the Andrews government to, you know, to make good on, um, you know, I, I guess um, what, what we hoped would happen when the review was announced in 2019. And I guess as for what decriminalisation is, you know, full and genuine decriminalisation of sex work, remove sex work-specific criminal and licensing laws and police powers for all sex workers, including sex workers from marginalised groups. 
So it's really a whole-of-government approach to regulating the sex industry. I think there's a conception that there's no regulation involved in decriminalisation, but that's not the case. Um, it's, it's really just about um, recognising sex workers' work and, um, yeah, being regulated under, under standard existing laws. It's actually pretty straightforward. <laughs> Um, and so under these new laws, street-based sex work will no longer be criminalised. Will this make it safer for sex workers? Yeah, I think so. You know, decriminalising sex work is absolutely beneficial to our safety um, because at the moment um, sex workers are really being forced to make decisions that are based on the requirements of the licensing system rather than our health and safety needs. And so decriminalisation, it just increases choice and control over how we work, where we work, with whom we work. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, you know, from our perspective, the next, um, I guess, the coming weeks and months are going to be about making sure that those benefits of decriminalisation are extended to all sex workers in Victoria because, you know, anything less than that wouldn't be genuine decriminalisation, so that's going to be our focus. Of course, and, and they've mentioned that there will be a review of some of the controls and restrictions on advertising sex work services. What do you think this will mean for sex workers? Uh, advertising specifically? Yeah, so, I mean, it really impacts your ability to, I guess, negotiate clearly, to, to advertise your services clearly. Um, and, uh, sorry, my uh, cat has just knocked over a full <laughs> pot of coffee. That's great. Oh, no. Uh, COVID, COVID life from home. Sorry about that. Um, where were we? Advertising. Yeah, look, the advertising controls at the moment are, you know, they are hugely detrimental. They impact safety and they're also just really discriminatory. Um, again, you know, sex workers work. We need to be able to advertise what we're doing. It's a pretty basic, um, it's really a pretty basic ask, actually. Um, you mentioned before that um, under the current um, licensing uh, sex workers um, it, it's really difficult for sex workers to seek justice um, under the new decriminalisation uh, laws how will this affect the way that sex workers report crime or harassment as well as exploitative workplaces um, it's, you know that's a good question I mean if you look to jurisdictions that have decriminalised or have, have you know gotten close to decriminalisation People do report a much, you know, an increased ability to um, to report to police or to other, you know, to other um, mechanisms like other. Um, you know, here it would be WorkSafe. Um, I think I think the thing to bear in mind is that you know um, different people are going to make different decisions around that. Going to the police still might not be accessible for some people for the reasons that it's not accessible, you know, for lots of people um, that go beyond sex work. But I think that what decriminalisation does is it removes one of those, you know, it removes a massive barrier uh, for many sex workers. Um, and, you know, I, I guess stigmatising attitudes don't go away overnight, but it creates a space where those can be unpacked as well, which is obviously really crucial to not just accessing, I guess, um, justice in, you know, in the most traditional sense, but also to accessing um, support services, um, you know, including those... Um, run by sex workers, but also like mainstream family violence services. Some of those can be very difficult for sex workers to access at the moment in Victoria, you know, due to some of the kind of, um, yeah, frankly, the stigma that people um, face when they access those services as workers. So, you know, decriminalisation is not a magic um, bullet, but it is an essential first step, I guess, to um, 
yeah, to making those things easier and to kind of broader change in terms of people's attitudes. Mm, definitely. And um, you mentioned before accessing support services. Um, do you know if many sex workers were able to access COVID supplements? Yeah, you, uh, I mean, a lot of people were not. Um, you know, last year some people were able to access JobKeeper, but that was probably a very small number of people. Um and you know, of course, um, of course, currently um, those kinds of federal supports obviously aren't available anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, there are lots of reasons why sex workers can't always access um, those kinds of financial supports. Sometimes we don't have the appropriate financial records. Um, sometimes it might require us to out ourselves to the state, and that can be really unsafe for lots of reasons. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, and there are also sex workers who may just not be eligible for any of those things at all, you know, due to their visa status or things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a really, really challenging time for sex workers. Um, obviously, it hasn't been an easy time for anybody. Um, but, you, you know, um, we, we don't get holiday pay. We don't get sick pay. We're not able to earn. We're just not earning. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's been a really challenging time which has, yeah, definitely placed a lot of people in, in financial need. Yeah, so um, speaking of that, how can we continue to support sex workers during this time of COVID? Yeah, so um, a great way to do that is to um, donate if you're able to or otherwise um, just share in your networks the Scarlet Alliance Emergency Relief Fund for sex workers. Um, so that's a fundraiser that Scarlet Alliance, um, along with its um, state and territory member organisations, including Vixen, has been running um, since or oh, April 2020. Had a bit of a, a bit of a break there in the middle, um, and it, it's been reopened again now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really large mutual aid project um, where, where every week um, we distribute funds to sex workers in need. Um, so, yeah, do, donating to that um, or sharing it in your networks, if you're not able to donate, is a, is a great way to support workers. Um, it's, it all goes straight to sex workers in, in need, of, need of support. For sure. And, Dylan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cool. So that was... Dylan O'Hara um, from the Vixen Collective. And if you want to donate to that emergency support fund mentioned before, you can visit chuffed.org slash project slash sex dash worker dash support. Yeah, and maybe we can pop the link in the show notes uh, later this morning. Definitely. Well, we'll be right um, back after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. 
Earlier we heard a segment about um, social housing, so continuing that theme, in good news, um, a local group has had a win for social housing in the West. Annie McLaughlin from 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast reports. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Sally Thompson on the line, who is from Maribyrnong. This brings the whole issue of homelessness and diversity to a local level in Maribyrnong. Sally, you went off to the council to uh, deliver a message regarding a project that gives social housing to more people in Seddon. Can you explain what happened? Sure. Uh, hi, hi, Annie. Seddon, of course, is a little suburb right next to Footscray in the inner west in Maribyrnong. When you come into Footscray, there's kind of a, a couple of main roads through, and on one of those, Barclay Street, there was a block of apartments that was used mainly for international students. Well, of course, because of COVID, we don't have the international students that we once had. So the housing provider went to council and said, look, can we change the nature of our permit here so that we can use these 66 apartments for affordable and social housing? And I just assumed that in the middle of this housing and homelessness crisis, particularly in a community like the Inner West, which is a working class community that has a very proud history of providing affordable housing for waves of working class and poor people from around the world, really, that this would be a bit of a no-brainer. And I was pretty stunned when I was sitting on Facebook one night to see the socialist councillor on Maribyrnong, uh, Jorge Jorquera, posting that council had voted against this change to the planning reg- uh, um, uh, regime and that only himself and one of the Green councillors, Bernadette Thomas, had um, had voted in favour of this building being used for social housing. So uh, there's a number of us who were, who were quite stunned, actually, by, by this development. And what ensued has been this sort of community debate, which has been pretty shocking in its kind of othering of people living in social housing and I'm someone who grew up in public housing myself and I was pretty sickened actually by some of the um, attitudes of the councillors who had thrown their lot in with really a very tiny minority of neighbours who had I think you know really uh, unfair uh, attitudes towards the people that might might move into those social housing apartments. So, so, so what um, you're talking mm. about is this is a, I mean it's an outrage actually because it's incredibly yeah. uh, working class area around there. The whole, it's built on the blood of working class people. Absolutely. And it, and it's all about gentrification and what they're saying sure that uh, these people aren't good enough to be living with them. Yeah. Oh, look, I think one of the things that really horrified me about this was the. Just the hypocrisy. I mean, the, the neighbours complaining live in what they call workers' cottages, those little inner, uh, inner west yeah. workers' cottages. The clues in the name, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> and also converted warehouses. And what was really revolting about it was that a lot of the councillors were saying things like, oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just not an appropriate spot for it. Now, this is an area right next to Footscray Station, right next to uh, all of the services of Footscray, you know, health and welfare and whatever else. It's on a main road, for heaven's sake. It's not in some little pocket of sleepy hollow, you know. If poor people can't live there, then really they can't live anywhere, you know. So there was this kind of faux debate about, oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just that we want them to have the best and that's not the best for them, which was pretty, you know, pretty transparent, I have to say. 
Mm. And uh, it obviously uh, uh, flies in the face of a need for a diverse community. Uh, There's 3% of housing stock in Sydney's social housing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that this is what was so stunning about it as well, is that the inner west actually has a lot of social and public housing, but it tends to be concentrated in around the kind of Braybrook, West Footscray type area. Yep. Um, Seddon just happens to be a little pocket that's, that's gentrifying fast and um, it only has about 3%. So then, so one of the arguments that was put forward is, oh, it's not that we're against social housing, it's just that we don't want too much of it congregated together, you know, and and ironically, this was the one part of that inner west area that had very little social housing at all. And the apartment block that we were talking about had 66 one-bedroom apartments. So, you know, we're not talking a high-rise. We're not talking, you know, an entire suburb. You know, it, it was really a bit of a nonsense, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you actually fronted up to the council and you were able to turn the ship around. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, look, myself and many others, I have to say. So we, we managed to get a... It went through council. Um, the housing provider, um, who is a not-for-profit social housing provider, Unison, they appealed to VCAT, and then the council reconsidered, had another meeting reconsidering it on the basis of that appeal. And basically what myself and, and, and a number of others did was convince them to drop their, their opposition. Unison came to the party sort of to try and through by offering to provide security guards three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, wow. Saturday, which that alone, uh, um, and, and ironically, our mayor is in the media running around crowing about what a breakthrough this is for social housing and encouraging other councils to do the same. And the, the battle's not over as far as I'm concerned because this is a really worrying precedent that a handful of NIMBYs can shake down a not-for-profit, you know, basically, and, and pressure them to provide private security to meet the irrational fears of a handful of neighbours, you know? Wow. It's a really worrying precedent, and I totally get why Unison did it, because they just wanted to cut through and they wanted to make a... You know, they just wanted to, to, to move on and to meet the neighbours part way. But, you know, my attitude to that is some of these neighbours have had capital gains increases of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent. If they're frightened of their neighbours, maybe they can pay for private security instead of expecting some poor little not-for-profit, you know, to take money that should be spent to house people to pay for private security guards. It's a really troubling precedent. Yeah, it's really shameful. The, it's uh, shameful. Yeah, it is shameful. So uh, before I let you go, because this is a fantastic thing that you've done, uh, there, were, there was basically a step-by-step campaign. It was the fact that you had a socialist councillor, wonderful yes. step, that uh, alerted people. Then yes. there was the uh, petition where yes. you physically got people to uh, look at the issue and you, you know, educated people to understand what was going on and they put their, signed their name to this petition and yes. then there was you going to council and uh, talking directly into their eyes to shame yes. them effectively. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed sort of being the figurehead of this because a lot of people, um, you know, uh, were really passionate about this. And, and to get a petition through council, it has to have physical signatures on a physical bit of paper, which in uh, restrictions and the middle of winter is quite challenging. And, you know, if, if they had have taken an online petition, it would have been many, many thousands of people because I had just people on, you know, contacting me randomly on social media going, how do I sign that petition? You know, can I meet you somewhere so I can physically sign it? You know, pe- people... I mean, the, the good news story in this is that the, the res- you know, 
know, the, the majority of people who we spoke to uh, were horrified by this. It's not, it's not the inner west that they know and love. You know, this decision is not aligned. The, the councillors who voted against this are way out of line with the local community, you know. I mean, people move to the inner west because it's diverse, because it's affordable, because it has this phenomenal history yeah. um, that we're all so proud of. I mean, that's... And, and a number of people um, contacted council and made the point, because one of the things councillors said was that this social housing would ruin the amenity of the surrounding neighbours. And quite a few people, including myself, contacted council and said, well, what about my amenity? What about my right to live in this diverse, wonderful, working-class community that I love? You know, what about my right to have it not changed into this bland, you know, middle-class enclave? Mm. Um, what about my amenity? This is the community I love. This is not okay. So it's been a, um, it's been quite heartening, the response, actually. Thanks for talking to us, Sally. And no worries. More strength to your arm. Oh, thanks, Annie. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Look on your way. What can I say? You feel Sally Thompson there speaking with Solidarity Breakfast's Annie McLaughlin about the community campaign that successfully lobbied the Maribyrnong Council in Melbourne's West to overturn their no vote to repurpose an unused international student residence into social housing during COVID. And if you want more of that, you can visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Solidarity Breakfast. Before we go this morning, we thought we'd bring you the latest headlines for today. Um, so New South Wales has entered a statewide lockdown. Um, uh, there's now a five-kilometre um, uh, rule set in place um, following 445 new cases yesterday. Um, that was on August 15th. So make sure you keep up to date with the latest um, lockdown restrictions and we hope everyone in New South Wales is staying safe, taking care of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And in some good news, there is a million doses of Pfizer that have just arrived from Poland, mm. um, which is good news, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so uh, go and get vaxxed if you haven't already. As we know, there's been a few big vaccination centres opening up um, around Melbourne and Victoria. Um, in other news, there was an earthquake that hit Haiti. Um, it was quite devastating, actually, with at least 724 people killed um, and more than 2,800 wounded. Um, so if you have the means, um, please help out um, the people of Haiti. 
Yeah, and in some other news around sport, because, you know, I love some sporting news to finish off the morning, Roger Federer is going to undergo further knee surgery, which is sadly ruling him out of the US Open. I don't know about you, I'm a bit of a Federer fan myself. Oh. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for joining us this morning on 3CR. Uh, we'll catch you next week. This has been 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.